Hi there. Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. I'm your host, Lisa Schlossberg, a licensed social worker, certified health coach, personal trainer, and yoga instructor. If you, like I have, struggle with your relationship with food, eating, and body image, I am here with this podcast to guide you into healing the relationship you have with yourself through a trauma-informed, holistic, and mind-body-soul approach. Together, we can support you in building a lifestyle of more peace, freedom, safety, and power. Hello, my friend. Thank you for being here. I am excited to share this next episode with you, but before I do, I wanted to share an announcement that is throughout the month, the early bird special for the next group coaching program will be running, which means that you will get $500 off the total cost of the group coaching program. So this is the 14-week program. If you've listened to any of the group alumni or my clients that have been on this podcast, this is the program that they've moved through. The entire thing is really dedicated to using what is coming up in your relationship with food and eating and ultimately healing on a deeper mind, body, soul level around all of these things and ultimately using the relationship that you have with food as the mechanism through which you learn how to reparent yourself and be the person that you need and get your needs met mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, physically. As you probably already know, this program is my whole heart and soul wrapped up in a 14-week curriculum. So it's my favorite thing to do. I have only the best experiences doing it. And if you are interested in joining me in the month of May, if you've been kind of on the fence or curious about getting to know more about it, please just feel free to follow the show notes below. Click on the link to work with me, fill out the application, and then I will reach out and we'll get on a call just to discuss the logistics details and answer any questions that you have. And if you need anything from me, you want to talk more about it personally, you can always feel free to reach out to me, lisa at lisaschlossberg.com and we will continue the conversation. Thank you so much. I love you. Okay, we are back. We are back at the Out of the Cave podcast. This is Lisa Schlossberg. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. I am, I know I say this every every time, every episode, I'm excited to be here. I am because this is one of those times where it's not a client interview. I'm here with someone who I consider a resource. And we are here to have what I think is a really important conversation around mindfulness. Uh, That's where it'll start anyway. So the reason I'm excited about this is because as we move along the healing journey, or as I can speak for myself, have moved along the healing journey, and I think about the really game changer tools and skills and practices and habits that I've picked up along the way that have served me the most mindfulness is one of those things that is like very, very high up on that list. And I've talked about mindful eating and mindful movement and things like that, but just mindfulness in a general sense has literally changed the way that I encounter and move through my life. So that's why I was excited to connect with this person and have this person here to really kind of dive deeper into it because we haven't had a podcast episode dedicated specifically to it yet. So that's my brief introduction. But having said that, Sarah, thank you for being here. 
And would you please introduce yourself? I always say, who are you? Where are you? What are you? <laughs> Anything that you want the people <laughs> to know uh, before we get into the conversation. Great. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm really, really pleased and excited to be here as well. And my name is Sarah Bayo, and um, I'm a mom of three very high energy, wonderful, funny, and off the wall boys. And I'm also a special educator. And I actually had a career change over the past couple of years, and I'm now a mindfulness instructor. And I mean, I can, I mean, I, I, you're going to have to sit, like, stop the recording at some point because I can talk about mindfulness all night. But um, mindfulness really saved my life and saved my son's life and saved my family's lives. I, um, you know, as a special education teacher, I thought that I was ready to deal with anything when I became a mom. I had all the training and schooling and right, like I knew what all the books said to do and I had worked with students, so I had experience. But it is such a different ball game when it is your own child, my goodness. Mm. <laughs> and it ended up that, um, I guess it really shouldn't be a surprise because I have special needs myself. I have a learning disability called dyscalculia, which is a spatial disability. So it's difficult for me to do math problems or drive or have, um, you know, visual spatial orientation. So like playing sports, even hand-eye coordination and also a sensory processing disorder. So anyway, I became a special educator because I struggled so much in school and, um, you know, math especially gave me so much anxiety because I was always behind. And you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, dyscalculia wasn't a thing. You know, we knew about dyslexia, but no one had studied that disability. So the teacher said to my mom, well, your daughter has math hysteria. She's just afraid of numbers. We just need to get her over that. But really, I just wasn't understanding. So, um, Eventually, um, you know, I, I, I love children, always love learning, love reading, love being outside and being creative. So I would babysit and I taught Sunday school. And eventually I decided that I just really wanted to teach and I wanted to help students who were like myself who were struggling. And when I was in college, <clears throat> I went to Pace University. I learned about all different disabilities and learned about this calculus. I went, oh, wow, that's me. I just want to have that as a background because I think that mindfulness would have helped me as a child tremendously had it been available in this part of the world. Um, but, you know, I found it now, so that's good. I'm able to help myself now. Yeah. Um, but, but when I had my first child, he ended up being born with disabilities. And even as a baby, he was really delayed. He had a hard time swallowing and nursing and even bottle feeding and walking and all of those milestones were a lot of work for us. And um, it turned out that he has ADHD and a sensory processing disorder. And when he was a toddler, I was just struggling so much with him. And anyone on here who's a parent or a guardian knows how hard it is because you just don't get a break. So it was very different from being a teacher where you're with the kids during the day and then you go off and have your own separate life. Mm -hmm. So this was just, you know, you're, they're a part of you. So I was just finding that he was dysregulated a lot and I was dysregulated a lot and I wasn't sleeping. And then there was this whole culture of shame because I would go out in public with my son and he'd be spitting on things and spinning in circles and grabbing people's hair and I would get mortified and people would give me looks and I would drive home from library class crying all the time. 
So it was really rough and it was impacting my husband who is the youngest in his family. So he never had to take care of children before. So he didn't know what to do. And then there was that whole sense of failure. Like I'm a special education teacher and I can't handle my own son. So I know that that definitely played a role in, in my emotional state, right. And how I showed up for him and for myself. So, um, we luckily, because I was a special education teacher, I brought him up for early intervention services. And when I did that, there was one meeting I had with the head of special education that really just changed our lives. And she didn't know much about mindfulness. She just said, well, you know, it sounds like your child's very dysregulated, but he likes music and listening to things. I think there's this thing called mindfulness where you like pay attention to something or like listen to things. I don't know. You should look it up. So I looked it up and I remember the very first mindfulness book I got was Sitting Still Like a Frog by Eileen Snell. And it was for children. And it's a great resource. It comes with a CD with guided meditations. And I thought, okay, I, you know, I'm a teacher. I can learn curriculums. I kind of looked at mindfulness as like a curriculum, right? All right, here's an intervention. I'm going to do it. And I had already done zones of regulation. So if anyone listening to this podcast is an educator or an occupational therapist, um, Zones of Regulation is a program that teaches children how to recognize their own emotions, read other people's emotions, and it's a great program. It teaches regulation strategies. Um, it teaches them, you know, how to calm down, how to find what they need in the moment. So it's pretty cool, but it still wasn't enough. And I just remember diving into that, the, the Sitting Still Like a Frog book and really enjoying it. And there was this playfulness to it. And it was, you know, also very centered around allowing quiet time where you're sitting. And when you have a child who's constantly on the go, you, you know, it felt like it would be impossible. But as I started exploring it, I realized that there were many places where he already was sitting. So like if he took a bath, I noticed well, he'd be really calm in the bath. And I even noticed with myself, there's something about water. I think that's why people like to like sit by lakes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I would be in the shower and, and that would be a time where I could just like be still for a moment and allow myself to focus on my breathing. And I, I would kind of find where my son was naturally still and then try to bring the concepts in that way. And, and so now I regress a little just to say that mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present experience we're having with as much an open heart as we can. So trying to, to notice judging and, and drop it if we can, because when we judge, right, that, that alters our experience. And then there's also this sense of like, oh, I got to change this and fix this. So it's just allowing what is with kindness and curiosity. And it involves, you know, spending time where you're allowing yourself to sit and decompress and focus on just your body in that moment, your breathing. Another way that you can sit in the moment is to focus on what's outside of you. So your environment, the sounds you hear, the smells coming in, the, the wind blowing on your skin, the sun on you. And then there's, you know, then there's a whole other part of mindfulness that is allowing yourself to experiment with some kind of idea. So 
maybe you're, you want to sit and, and you're just feeling kind of yucky and you're thinking, maybe I need some loving kindness. And I'm going to just give myself these phrases like, oh, I wish somebody would tell me, may your day go well, sweetie. May you live with ease. And so that's like a concept that you're cultivating. Gratitude is another big concept with mindfulness. And in the beginning, when I first studied, I was like, well, you know, what does loving kindness have to do with meditating? Like I'm paying attention to my breathing. That's how I calm down. Like what's this whole other. And then I realized as, you know, my practice developed and I began taking courses and getting more serious that life is hard, (laughs) right? It's intense. It's hard. So many of us have traumas. Um, We deal with fear. We, we deal with wanting to stay alive, like every day is survival, right? Like we need to eat, we need to not get hit by cars. We need to trust the people around us. And so I realized the loving kindness is so important because ultimately the person who's going to give you the most supportive loving kindness is you. Yeah. And it took me a long time to like grasp that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just find that all those components go together so well and and helping you with your well-being and knowing what you need to just live your best life. And I ended up um, taking every course mindful schools had to offer and they no longer offer mindful teacher certification. So I was lucky that I was one of the last classes to get that. Now they do more workshops to be accessible to teachers but they have a self-compassion course and a communications course. All the courses are great. Um, They teach you how to teach children. They give you a curriculum. So I did that. And then um, I also took mindfulness-based stress reduction training, which is John Kabat-Zinn's program. And John Kabat-Zinn is amazing. He worked in hospitals first, which you're nodding your head, Lisa. So I know you know. know. (laughs) But he was the pioneer of pain management, you know, taking that Eastern medicine, bringing it to the Western culture and just showing us ways to, to be with pain, to kind of like take the sting and the fear and the suffering out of it as much we can. So, so that's been, you know, life-changing. And, and then I'll add before I give it back to you, Lisa. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I started taking these courses so I could teach mindfulness. I just, looked at my son and how much he had improved and what a happier kid he was and how he was able to deescalate when he was, you know, getting wound up um, because every day we were spending time where we would sit and be, you know, in, in some quiet together and, and, you know, mindfully just be right. And try to drop, drop all that shaming and that judgment. But um, I also, during this time started getting sick. And, and that's how I met Lisa, because I came to uh, Freedom from Chronic Pain Management at the Omega Institute, and I really, really enjoyed everything Lisa had to say there. Um, but I, I started getting really bad back pain, and um, it kind of evolved into nerve pain throughout my whole nervous system. And I don't need to like delve into that so much right now, but I will say that mindfulness and John Kabat-Zinn's work helped me sit with that pain instead of like cringe up and want it to go away. I kind of learned how to like massage into it and like allow it. So um, I just feel like mindfulness just keeps surprising me in different ways. 
Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. Incredible. I'm so happy for you and so proud of you. This is like such important stuff you're doing. Yeah. Naturally. I mean, my listeners are so used to hearing me say this. I have a million follow-up questions (laughs) as usual. (laughs) So just on a like logistical uh, level, how old was your son when you started introducing this to him? So I wish he was a newborn because there's so much you can do with like rocking and swishing and, but he was, um, probably around three or four. Okay. And I started getting serious and taking classes when he was five. Cool. Okay. So never too early and never too late Mm -hmm. is an important thing around mindfulness. Um, and then one of my questions is, And this is so informed by my own experience with meditation and mindfulness. And I can say a little bit about that. But my question is, you know, when you present it and you say you started kind of sitting in, where are we already sitting still, right? And then practicing being where you are. And it felt from, I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, it felt kind of nice to like sit still and take that moment and be in the present moment. When you first started practicing, did you or your son or both face a lot of resistance to sitting still in the present moment? Or did it feel like it was comfortable when you first started? That's a good question. (laughs) So truth be told, when I first started um, I was trying to force him to sit up. And, and also we have to think about how mindfulness in this country and well, this part of the world has evolved over time. So when I first started learning about it, you were supposed to sit upright. That was the position, right? Unless you were in so much pain or there was some issue that you had to lie down. Um, and so I would be like yelling at him, like, you have to like, sit up, like, look, I'm carving out this time for you sit up. And, um, you know, and, and then I was like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. Like now I'm yelling at him. Great. Like <laughs> fail. <laughs> so, um, I reached out to an instructor is one of my teachers at the time at mindful schools. And I said, yeah, what do I do? Like he won't sit. And he was like, well, you know, just, just let him find his way to be. And so I was like, great. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> but then one day he was in the bathtub and he was like, mommy, I'm t- I just watched the bubbles. Look at them pop. And then I was like, yeah, look at all the colorful swirls. And then we just sat there together and we looked at bubbles. And I thought, wow, that was a great meditation. Nobody was ruminating. Nobody was telling anybody what to do. Nobody was like out of their mind, getting uncomfortable, like, we enjoyed that. And so then I got it and I started looking for those moments. So we, like, we did a lot of laying on our belly and kind of like feeling the earth and then watching ants, ant watching. Like if you're like, if you can't sit still, that will entertain you. Yeah. Maybe, right. Like maybe. Yeah. The other thing is mindfulness is now trauma informed. So you try to always remember that what works for one might not work for others. Right. Yeah. And now we teach mindfulness as you can be standing or sitting or lying or you can be moving. Yeah. That's so important. And I appreciate you saying that. Like, I think that's, you know, what a lot of people have experienced in when I say this work, just any kind of like mind body healing where it's like, this is how you do it. And then it doesn't resonate with everyone. 
And so anyone who's listening to this, like, I love just the idea of like sitting, standing, moving, lying, like it doesn't matter. Like ultimately the most important thing, and this is how we practice self-compassion, which is to say, create an energy of safety in the body is you just meet yourself where you are. Right. And like, that's, that's therapy. That's social work. It's you meet yourself where you are. Your son was in the bath with bubbles and you met him there. You know, it's like, that is part of every practice. Right. And some people who struggle with, you know, like a journal speak practice or whatever it is, it's just finding ways to meet yourself. And maybe that's coloring or drawing instead of writing things in words, or it's, you know, it's like, there's so many ways to do it. And I just think that's so important. So thank you for that. And then the other thing that I wanted to actually kind of highlight that you just gave a really good specific example of that resonates with me personally, and probably a lot of the people that are listening to this, I imagine, is to focus on something outside of you. And I think that's really important because a lot of people, and again, I can speak for myself, when we learn about meditation, at least again for me, it was focus on your breath and focus on your body and the physical sensations in your body. And for a lot of us who are coming from a history of trauma and dissociation and not living in the body and intentionally not coming back inside the body because that's been scary in the past, it's too much of a hump to go from complete dissociation to focusing on the breath moving in and out of my body. And and then it can feel like meditation or mindfulness is just inaccessible to quote unquote people like me, right? And so I just want to kind of shout out anyone who's listening to this. There is something to um, to that, right? And I love guiding a meditation around focusing on the breath as the anchor and all of that because I'm there now. That's how I meet myself where I am now. But the idea of having a meditation rooted in mindfulness, that is, I remember specifically one time where I got still and quiet, which I was so resistant to doing. I had the most resistance to sitting still. But I remember one time my awareness going to, like you said earlier, like the sun, feeling the sun on my skin, feeling the wind blowing on my body, noticing the lawnmower in the background. Like there were, and then I remember having this thought, like, there's actually so much going on in the present moment <laughs> that I'm never aware of, but it was all things that were outside of me and practicing that way helped me create safety to exist in the present moment that then lended itself to coming closer to being in my own body. So there's not, you know, what I'm saying is like, there's nothing wrong with or bad about anchoring yourself to sounds or, you know, the environment that's still practicing mindfulness. That's still the present moment. And it's equally as, you know, valid, effective, et cetera. So, you know, that's what I was thinking when you were talking about the bubble bath and like, it's a profound way, I think, of meeting yourself where you are. Does that make sense? Yeah, total sense. Cool. Actually, so I kind of focused more on my son before, but I went through really extreme resistance as well because I was trying to sit for long periods. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, like I wanted to jump out of my skin. I hated it. Yeah. 
Um, and I remember in the beginning, I would listen to music when I would meditate because that, that would be something like you were saying that I could focus on outside of my body, because when I was in my body, I would feel every itch and every twang and like all my discomfort and my sensory processing stuff would start coming. And then I think it, like you said, as you got used to being in the moment outside of yourself, you could slowly sit with one breath, you know, or, you know, maybe sit for five minutes and be like, wow, you know, I just did that in silence. And you, you kind of have it sneak up on you. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just, again, it's like, it's just so important because I think anyone who's listening to this knows and has heard me say, it really does all come back to safety. And for so many of us, we don't, we're not feeling safe to be in the present moment and to sit still. We're always go, 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 thinking about a lot of different things in the past and the future. So any way that you can get yourself to meet yourself here as you are right now is profoundly healing. Like it just is, you know, it's, it can, it can feel almost annoyingly simple, but it's like the most difficult thing in the world, you know? And I, yeah. And I think about like, oh my God, I, and I've shared this here before when I first started meditating, I used to almost visualize myself in a straitjacket. Like I literally had to be like, you're not moving. And I, and I wanted to crawl out of my skin. Like it was just, just bearable. And just for like a minute at a time, And then, you know, like you said, you kind of, I always compare it to like exposure therapy. It's like you do like one minute and then like two minutes and you just kind of keep expanding the window of tolerance to a point where you're like, oh, so there isn't a predator chasing me in the present moment. Like, whoa. And you're, I mean, literally you're rewiring your brain, which is also why I get very geeked about mindfulness and meditation. It's like, you're literally changing the structure of your brain. (laughs) Let's not forget about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So Lisa, I'm, I'm naturally a high strung person. I'm a go-getter. I do everything. I do too much. Um, (laughs) I also, because of our culture valued multitasking and the more I could do, the better person I was and the more productive. And, and I also had to keep fit, right. And I had to exercise. I had to be thin. And um, my goodness, I was cramping myself as a human being so much. Right. Yeah. And I, I was really diminishing my own happiness inside of me because I could never rest. There's so much anxiety centered around getting things done and the notion of being productive and, and also like got to keep yourself pretty. And um, after a while, my body just couldn't do it anymore. And I, even in, I remember in college, I was doing this to myself, you know, taking too many classes and doing too much. And I would get sick all the time. I get the stomach bug like every year. I get every cold, right? right? Because my nervous system was telling me, you need to slow down. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. Like you said, it's so simple. It's maddening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had to take like years of classes to learn how to like sit and just be. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I always think that's important to shout out because again, like, you know, high achieving go-getters the way that we are. And most of, again, a lot of the people that are listening to this, it's like, we are looking for something so complicated and complex. It's like, we want it to be confusing. We want it to be challenging because then at least there's like, you know, a a map and we can kind of work our way through it. And there's like a task at hand. And it's like, you know, there's, there's something to do, which is where we feel comfortable and where we 
pretty much live our lives. But when it's, it's so abundantly simple, that is paying attention on purpose to the present moment. I just, at least for me, again, I remember being like, that's it. Like, that's that's yeah. it. But it's like, <laughs> yes. And also if you continue practicing it, it will change your life. It will change your life. You know, the way that you can regulate yourself, but also just like you said, kind of just process what it is to be a human. Like what is actually bringing me joy? What do I actually appreciate? You know, it's like it, it, for me has, has colored so many different areas of my life and just the way that I think about who I am. Cause it is yes. safe to be, it is safe to be here right now. And that is the message basically of mindfulness. So my next question for you is, um, you mentioned the MBSR, which is the mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, which yes, I am familiar with. And I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about maybe explaining a little bit more about the kind of that branch of it and even just your own experience applying that to pain, pain management, fear, things like that. Because I have, again, an understanding of it and I have plenty that I want to say about it, but I'm curious to just kind of like go there and have you more, you know, intro that. Sure. So um, mindfulness-based stress reduction teaches you how to be with your body. And the goal is to have you be with your body for pretty long periods of time, actually. If you follow John Kabat-Zinn's course, the meditations are about 45 minutes. And I will tell you that my life revolves around mindfulness and it's pretty hard to sit for 45 minutes every day. I'm straight up being honest. <laughs> there are some days where I can squeeze in five or 10 minutes. There are some days where usually when I'm in a lot of pain and, and believe it or not, it's not the physical, the emotional pain is so much more intense, yeah. harder, it hurts more. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there are days where like, if I'm able and, you know, my husband's around or the kids are at school and I have a moment, I will sit for like an hour because I'm just like, I just need to have that space. So it, I think that being flexible is important. And I, I see that MBSR is kind of changing over time as we start to tune into more trauma-informed instruction. But the idea is that for whatever amount of time you can do, you sit with your body and you allow yourself to kind of like John Kabat-Zinn says, dip a toe into the pain. Like you just feel a little bit of it and then you can step back and focus on a part of your body that's neutral or, or even pleasant if you, know, if you have that, you know, maybe, maybe rub your arm or something if that part's okay. Um, and then you also imagine your pain as a color and a shape if you can, right? If you can't, you just kind of have that somatic experience where you're just sensing it, but it's hard to maybe put a visual on it. Um, you can use language to describe it like, oh, that's a little bit of a stab there or a little electric shock or, you know, a, a tensing. Because when you do that, you're now objectively watching the pain. So you've taken yourself out of like the chaos and the agony and the fear of it. And you're almost like being a scientist where you're just studying it. And that somehow loosens the grip, right? And then you move from 
kind of like the emotional pain that comes with physical pain to just looking at physical pain. There's this um, idea called the, what's it called? the second arrow or the double arrow. I don't know if you've heard of this. There's a video that's great that you can try to look it up on YouTube. I can send an email if you want to put it in the comments of, of the podcast. But the idea is when something painful happens to you, whether you get hurt, you have, you know, you have a chronic condition or someone just says something that's hurtful, right? It's like getting shot with an arrow. Ow, that hurt. But when you then say, oh my God, I hate this, why me, right? You're now shooting yourself with a second arrow. <laughs> yeah. So with um, pain management and mindfulness, you're kind of removing the second arrow. You're stopping it from happening. And the part of mindfulness that's beautiful is that loving kindness part that's like, oh, sweetie. And I know it's weird to call yourself by something. Not everyone jives with that. It, it took me a while, but I do it now. I'm a sweetie person. But <laughs> yeah. I know, like nobody would like this. This is really hard, but you know what? You got this. I'm here. You got it. It's going to pass. And there's just something freeing about that where you're able to be with the pain in a different way. You kind of don't feel helpless anymore. You feel very much empowered. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I am so excited to hear this because oh, there's so much I want to say. <laughs> because when I think about this, you know, you know, okay, where? how do I want to start this? You know me and you know that I'm coming from like the mind-body perspective, right? I'm very familiar with the TMS framework. I'm trauma-informed, all the things. The reason that I ask you to go to this place around MBSR and what it means for reducing the stress basically is because the way that I apply this in this work around our relationship with food and eating and specifically body image is because it works exactly the same way. That is, let's use body image, for example. MBSR can also be employed, let's say, for body image, okay? And so that's how, like you were just saying, it's like you just set it up so perfectly because like you were saying, the emotional pain can sometimes be even worse than really bad physical pain. Our emotional pain is really valid and can be very intense. And so if we use the example of body image and or just being in our bodies and feeling uncomfortable, sometimes that's, you know, chronic pain symptoms, but sometimes that's being in a, in a larger body, you know, like, again, I'll speak for myself. I was over 300 pounds and I was 17 years old. I was physically very uncomfortable. And so if we look at what does it mean to practice something like mindfulness-based stress reduction around body image. Well, it's exactly what you're saying that is like, okay, you can notice what's coming up. Notice the thoughts mentally. And right, that could be judgment, shame, fear, embarrassment, the thoughts and the feelings that are coming up and just noticing them. So not attaching to them, not making meaning of it, but really holding yourself in that space of objectivity. I would say shift into the role of the observer. You're just noticing. And then from that place, you get to move into, again, being kind of the scientist, just seeing what's going on here. And when you can do that, and it's so hard, like I want to validate that it's so hard to do and especially challenging to do around something like body image, where we have 
so much conditioning and wiring and socialization around how the body's supposed to look and, you know, yada, yada. Again, we've talked about that at length here, but using the framework of the second arrow, right, is everything. Because like you just said, if you imagine what it's like to have a bad body image day, right? It's like, you're already having the thoughts and feelings that don't feel good. You're already having the mental, emotional pain and discomfort of, you know, basically confronting the the socialization that you have being a human being in this culture. And then the second arrow is what most of us tend to do. That is judge our sh- ourselves for having those thoughts, shame ourselves for having those feelings, and then just like go further and further into the rabbit hole of, honestly feeling like shit mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, socially. And we have so much power in being able to just like take out the second arrow and really be present with ourselves. That is like, this does hurt. This does hurt, right? This is a moment of suffering, right? I get that from Kristen Neff, who I know you're very familiar with, but like, this is a moment of suffering and we can apply that to any of our eating behaviors, being in our body, struggling with body image, like the power that we have is not that we're going to completely rewire our brain where, you know, we look in the mirror and love what we see every single second of every day for the rest of our life. Like that doesn't exist. But where we do have a lot of power is to just not be the second arrow. And in fact, do exactly what you're saying and suggesting that is like just being on your own team. Right. And that's why I go to kind of the self-compassion piece that is like the way that I I kind of speak to myself is like, it's already hard enough. It's already hard enough. Like sitting with these thoughts and having these feelings about my own body and what it looks like, objectifying and judging myself on my appearance. Like, God, this is already hard enough. I don't want to make it any worse, you know, and and just aligning with yourself. And that could be, you know, physical touch hand on the heart, giving yourself a hug. But I just, again, like I cannot stress enough how game changer it is to have the tool of something like mindfulness, which is really just being with yourself objectively, right? And then and then, if you can practice the self-compassion piece on top of it, it really is a very effective tool, you know, because I think very much like chronic pain, we're gonna have like a chronic body image thing, <laughs> for the rest of life, you know, like there's no getting out of that, but the way that we can respond to it really, really shifts the experience of it. And we have an incredible amount of power with, with something like this, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Something else too, is that when we, when we're giving ourselves that love and self-compassion, another piece that's so powerful is remembering that this is the human experience and many people feel this way. Yes. Right. And there's something about feeling united as a human, like, oh, I'm not messed up or broken. This is just what it is to be a human. Right. And I am not alone. There's something about um, coming out of that, like isolated feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, that goes exactly to what you were saying earlier about like, why me? Right. And it feels like it's, it is only you. And then the story, why me kind of perpetuates that. And then you're alone in your own stuff, but yeah, the shared humanity piece of it. And again, like just, I can't help, but relate it specifically back to something like body image where it's like, of course, 
you're struggling with something like body image, like every TV show, magazine, commercial billboard that you have come into contact with since you were put on this planet has been kind of inundating into you the message that the body is supposed to look a certain way, be a certain shape or size or whatever. So I think it's always important because again, thinking about who's listening to this, what I hear very often is like, I thought it was just me, you know? And it's like, it is the farthest thing from just you, whoever you are, right? It's like, this is basically the condition of what it is to be a human. Specifically, I think anyone who identifies as female, it's, you know, and a woman, it's like, we we just have so much of that, that it is really important to honor. This is a moment of suffering, right? This does hurt. This sucks that I have all these thoughts in my head. You know, it doesn't mean anything about me. It's not my fault. I didn't do this to myself, right? And then that shared compassion or the shared humanity yeah. piece of this is normal. This is really valid. This is really appropriate. Other people feel this way. Part of, you know, this is part of being a human being, and then self-compassion, the kindness of like, how do I be here with myself? How do I not be the second arrow? I love that. Such a good visual. Yeah. And also with mindfulness, it doesn't mean that you're going to clear your mind either. Mm, Those thoughts yeah. are always going to be there. It's just, you're giving yourself choice as to where you're putting your attention in that moment. And our brains are wired to look for problems, right? Because I know you're into the brain science too. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, our mind is going to go all over the place. That's how we survive. That's how our ancestors didn't get eaten by the saber-toothed tiger because they were constantly looking around and gathering food. And, but, um, you know, we know that takes a toll in our nervous system. And so that the goal is not to clear away our thoughts, right? I'm just making sure listeners understand yeah. that the goal is more to notice what they are, right? And to give yourself a choice to step away from them when you need a break. Yes. Or if you can't get out of rumination, just notice, like, I just cannot stop thinking about this today. Right. Like yeah. that's empowering. Yes. And then maybe that means you need to go for a run or you need to go to the mall or go for a hike, <laughs> like whatever your thing is, you need to give that to you. Yes. Thank you for saying that. It is so important. I always, I'm like, Again, it's kind of like when people say, well, how do I, how do I get myself to just like not care at all about what anyone thinks? And it's like, you're evolutionarily like wired to feel like you need to be accepted by the tribe so that you don't die. Right. The same way that people are like, how do I turn my brain off when I meditate? It's like, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't do that, you know? And so I appreciate you sharing that because again, like this is how I think about re the relationship we can have with something like body image where it's like the thoughts you don't need to get the thoughts to go away i certainly haven't but to be in a relationship where i can choose from a place of empowerment where do i want to spend my energy what do i want to choose to focus on right and sometimes like i i think it's very helpful to think about something like an obsession with body image as a almost like a practice of rumination it's like we just stay stuck, right? Like any yes. uh, probably everyone can relate to like you're standing in the mirror and then all of a sudden 20 minutes go by and you're just like still staring at yourself, thinking about all the things you want to change, all the things you don't like. And so mindfulness really just supports you in being like, okay, <laughs> these are the thoughts I'm having. These are the feelings that are coming up. What do I like want to do? Like how do I want to choose 
to be in relationship with this once I'm aware of it. And that's where I could be like, oh, I'm getting really stuck in the obsession about what my body looks like. I should probably just like go for a walk. Like sometimes it's like, I just need to like get out of the mirror, right? I need to just like, I need to pull myself out of this and not in a dissociative way, but in a way that's like, yeah, this is not how I want to spend the next 20 minutes of my time. And I'm stuck in it. And so I just like, to me, this is so, so powerful when it comes to body image again, because we're not going to get rid of a lot of those thoughts, but we do have choice and power in how we respond to them. And when we're in a place of empowerment, we're letting the brain know that we're safe. We have a choice. And I think that's really important. Yes. Can I respond to something you said on body image too, even though I know you have more questions, I'm sure. Go ahead. I I know for people listening that when you hear mindfulness, one of the most common meditations is body scan, right? That's usually one of the first things they start people with. And so a body scan is when, um, just for people listening, when you systematically allow yourself to feel sensations in every part of your body. Usually you start with your feet and work your way up through your legs and torso up to your head. And for many people, especially people who have undergone trauma, it can be really challenging. It can bring up difficult memories, emotions, self-loathing. And so um, there are different ways to do body scan that I have explored with that really help people. Um, For one of my students, she likes to lay out in the sun, even on a cloudy day, like she will feel heat in the air. And she just likes to imagine the sun warming her body. And so like we were talking before about allowing yourself to have an external focus, the sun on her skin was a way of bridging that external to internal in a really beautiful way that was allowing her to not judge her body while doing it. Um, And another one that I like to do is doing a body scan where you say thank you to all the parts of your body and it feels silly and you might not like those body parts but you thank them for their functionality. Like, thank you. I can walk. Thank you. I can swim or, you know, thank you. You're, you know, my skin is holding all my guts together. Like, and it's only like a little silly, but there's something about that deliberate appreciation of your body that we almost have to train ourselves to do because we have been brought up in a society that says we need to fit this certain right, perfect mold that nobody fits. Um, And I, I, it's interesting because I, like I said earlier, I started mindfulness more as like a regulation for my child and then realized, oh my gosh, I need this. And, um, you know, I didn't realize till many years later that I actually changed in the way I view myself. And I used to be really hard on myself with my weight. I used to go to bed hungry all the time, all like every night to try to keep myself thin. And, but I, I don't do that anymore right? Like sometimes the old habit will come back of like, oh, I'm starting to gain weight. And then I'm like, you know what? (laughs) I'm a human being. And like my purpose on this earth is, is what? I don't know, but I'm going to enjoy myself, right? I'm going to be good to other people. I'm going to be good to myself and whatever, you know, thank you, belly. You're digesting the food and keeping me alive, moving on. And so it becomes this deliberate dialogue in your mind, and you have to cultivate it. It takes yeah. practice. Yeah. I so appreciate everything you're saying because that really is like it. That like it really, we are so conditioned to objectify ourselves as 
how we look, what our weight is, what our size is, how we appear on the outside, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. And so we be, we are conditioned to think of ourselves as that physical experience. But ultimately what you're saying is we can condition ourselves to honor our body as I always say, like our body is our home, right? Like it's not like you are a body and have a soul. You are a soul and you have a body. And so when you start practicing things like mindfulness and you're living more connected in your body, what you're doing when you consciously express gratitude for parts of your body is what you're doing is you're sending the message that you're no longer objectifying it by what it looks like. You're you're actually valuing it for the functionality of it and what it does for you, what it provides for you. And in doing so, something naturally starts to happen where you want to take care of it. Like you're it, you're doing it from the inside out rather than the outside in because you're practicing shifting out of the mindset of ultimately objectification. And now it's, you know, it's your home. It's, it's, it's your, it's your vessel, you know, it's like, and I, and I just think it's really important. The, the point that is you have to consciously intentionally like reprogram the way that your brain works and the way that you see and perceive yourself and what you are. Because I think if we don't intentionally do that, we are a product of the environment that says you are your body, you are your physical experience. And that's just not true. And it doesn't feel very good. No. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing all that. Okay. So one thing that I am curious to ask you about too is in all the work and experience that you've had now around mindfulness, are there any, you've almost actually touched on some of them or at least one of them, but are there any like myths that you like to bust about mindfulness? Like one of them being like, I'm going to clear my brain. And it's like, that's not how that works. You know, Are there other things that you see like people's perception of what mindfulness might be that you kind of like teach them differently? Yes. So my biggest one that I had to learn myself the hard way is mindfulness will not make me a perfect, better, best person. It won't? It won't. <laughs> I, you know, I was really hard on myself when I started teaching mindfulness and I actually left out when I was introducing myself that I started an LLC called Mindful Hearts to teach mindfulness. And um, my heart is in public education. That's where I want to be. I think that mindfulness should be in every school. I think teachers should have access to it and practice and skilled practitioners who can lead them and guide them and be there for them so that they can, you know, experience together and ask questions. And I think children should be brought up with this kind of framework so that they can learn how to love themselves and care for themselves and, and just be, right? We teach kids, we expect them to know reading and writing and math and, and all the, the curriculum, but we don't teach them how to pay attention. We just expect them to know how, right? Right. So, so that's where my heart is, um, is really education. And when I first was becoming a mindfulness instructor and I got my first set of students and I was really doing it, I would still like lose it on my kids and stuff. My husband and like, you know, I'd have like, I, you know, professionally I'm fine. Right. But come on at home behind closed doors. And I'd be like, oh my God, I'm a failure. Like I'm a mindfulness instructor and here I am losing my shit. What is wrong with me? I suck. 
Right. And I'm like, oh, now I really suck because in my class, I'm <laughs> what I'm saying I suck. It was like this crazy, like, you know how many arrows? I was probably covered in them. <laughs> so <laughs> it took some practice to realize the message and to feel it. That's another thing with mindfulness. It's not just a cognitive knowing. You don't really get it till you feel it inside as an emotion. And I had to feel that mindfulness does not make you a better person or a perfect person. It allows you to love yourself as you are. That's, I want to just let that linger for a second. That's so important. It really does. Right. But it lets you love who you are right now. Yeah. And if you've made a mistake, you love yourself harder. Mm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So on that note, if we shift into a little bit more of like mindful self-compassion, are there any, uh, we could say myths around that, but also like certain types of resistance to self-compassion that you've noticed or experienced personally, professionally, and kind of like what to do with them. Like, I think that's something that comes up very often in this work that is like self-compassion can feel really not just silly. I mean, definitely silly, but also like uh, so awkward and like uncomfortable. And if not, you know, if not like downright threatening. Um, So can you just speak to that? Sure. I also want to add, I know we mentioned her name before, but if, if anyone's interested in reading Kristen Neff's work, she, I think, did, did you call her the queen of self-compassion? Lisa? I did literally call her the queen of self-compassion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she, she um, works for the university of Berkeley and she researches it. I mean, she has the data to, to prove why self-compassion works. Yeah. And she also does a lot of debunking. So I highly recommend anyone who's interested, go look her up. But, um, yeah, I can speak to that. So self, first of all, self-compassion is different from just acknowledging you have a problem. I used to think that self-compassion was woe is me. Like if I'm saying my life sucks and I have bad luck and why did this happen to me? And I'm a good person and this shouldn't happen to me. I thought that that was self-compassion, mm-hmm. but it was actually making me feel really crappy inside and angry and like resentful towards the world. Right. So it wasn't achieving what I hoped for, which was to be soothed. I just wanted to feel better. So self-compassion is treating yourself like you would a baby. You And there can be pain in that because many of us mothers might look back at the way we treated our babies or the way we were treated as babies and be sad about that. And so I'm just offering to you the chance to just put that aside, right? If the thought of you as a baby is, is, is painful, acknowledge, right? And just see what happens if you put it aside for just a minute, right? And you touch, you know, you rub your arm, you give yourself a hug, you could put your hand on your cheek. So touch is part of it. And again, touch could also be very triggering for some people. So we kind of have to go about that in a way that's safe for them. Maybe at first touch is not touching themselves, but they have like a soft pillow and they rub that, right? So that's that, again, that external focus that allows for the internal healing. So 
So there's that part of it, right? Like the cradling, the touch. And then there's um, just the gentle, uh, affectionate breathing, as Kristen F. calls it. We are taking breaths that are deliberately meant to allow you to slow down. And then there's your voice, your, right? So shifting from the inner critic that's yelling at you like, oh my God, why did I do that? Noticing. And if you feel weird calling yourself like darling or honey or like by your name, like, oh, Sarah, I never call myself my name. I have something weird about it. Don't call yourself anything, right? Just, just say something that you wish you could hear from someone else. Like, um, like this is hard, right? But you're going to get through. Or Kristen Neff's phrase is, this is a moment of suffering. Or, you know, we have the, you got it phrase on like water bottles and sneakers and stuff. But <laughs> tell yourself like, I got it. I got, I don't feel like I got it, but I'm still standing. So I kind of got it. Mm-hmm. And you have to really, again, like we use the word deliberate, you have to deliberately change your tone of voice in your mind. And sometimes I say stuff out loud, right? And like, I might look crazy. Actually, today, my kids were starting to go insane in the doctor's office. We were in there for like two hours. They all had eye exams. Oh my goodness. And they were like touching the equipment and they were like trying to like turn things on and you start to get that shame. And um, <laughs> um, so I really had to deliberately use self-compassion. And the only reason I was able to do it is because I practice when I'm calm. Yes. And during meditations, I will sit and try breathing. I give myself a rub, try saying something nice to myself because I have to build the muscle so that it becomes more of a reflex when I'm out in public and I need it the most. Yes. And then if, you know, if I make a mistake and I say something I wish I didn't say or act a certain way, using it again, right? And comforting myself and forgiving myself because it feels kind of fake and strange at first, right? Yeah, We're not- yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and you're also, we're also taught that we're crazy if we talk to ourselves, <laughs> which is so silly because we're in our own minds, like 90% of our lives. Of course we talk to ourselves. That's okay. Like, that's a good thing. That's being conscious. Yes. Like, so I, yeah. <laughs> right. So I think it, it can feel fake at first. And, and um, I don't like this phrase, but I'm going to say it anyway, but like fake it till you make it, <laughs> just keep trying it with an open mind. You might get no results at first, but my suggestion is to do it, even though it feels cringe and see what happens and yeah. try again and again and see what happens. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I was thinking about, I was actually going to specifically ask you about your feelings on fake it till you make it just in regards to like trying on self-compassion um, because, and, and I, I don't know if this will resonate more with you, but something I always say is like, I don't love fake it till you make it, but I do love embody it until you habituate to it. Like, Ooh. I just kind of, I just kind of coined that one day. Cause I was like, you're not faking it. You're just embodying it. Like you're doing it. You're putting yourself in the embodiment of it by trying it on and practicing it. And then it's, it's embody it until you habituate to it. Which is basically to say you just keep trying it on until your brain realizes that what you're doing is safe and trustworthy, and then you habituate to it, and it becomes your practice. It becomes your habit. So it's just like a you know it's a trauma informed way of saying fake it till you make it ultimately. <laughs> um, but yeah. that's that's how I think about it with self compassion, especially because it feels so 
awkward. It feels so cringe. It just feels so like, what am I doing? Am I really doing this? And it's like, yeah, you know, you're just, you're showing up for your healing is what you're doing. And, and also I think like, you know, I love, I love, so I love Kristen Neff and specifically her work on fierce self-compassion, which is also right. Like taking action, setting boundaries. Um, I teach this in my course. That's like, there's the tender self-compassion, which is a lot of what we're talking about, right? Like the love and acceptance unconditionally in the moment. But then there's also fierce self-compassion, which is, again, taking action, setting boundaries, saying no from a place of love for your own well-being. And sometimes I find self-compassion and mindfulness can come from that that place and that energy where I think of one example specifically where I like, I share this story sometimes it was so like, not a big deal at all, but it it was so, I was so conscious for what was happening that it felt like a big deal that I, um, I had like just finished eating a salad and the little like container of dressing I had left over and I was gonna, I just threw it in the trash and I threw it in the trash without the cover on it. So naturally it goes everywhere. It's like all over the wall, like all over everything. And immediately I hear myself be like, you're such an idiot. Like you moron. Like you obviously could have seen that coming. If you thought ahead for five seconds, like what's wrong with you? Like immediate, right? Second arrow right in there. It's not bad enough. The dressing's all over the wall and I have to clean it up. It's like, now I'm beating myself up for it. But I, I was so aware, right? Mindfulness. I was so aware that that's where my brain went, that I kind of went to this place of fierce self-compassion that was like, hold on no, no, no. You don't get to speak to me like that. Like, that's really rude. And that's, that's mean. Like, we're not tolerating that kind of treatment from other people. We're not tolerating that kind of treatment from ourself. Like, no. And I just, to me, sometimes uh, I think it can resonate more with some people to think of self-compassion coming from that place of like a fierceness rather than like just accepting and being in tenderness, it's like, also just don't take any shit, <laughs> you know, like, yes. like stop yes. shitting all over yourself. And like, it's, it can be very compassionate for you to say, no, 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 you don't get to speak to me like this inner critic. You don't get to speak to me like this inner judge, whatever it is. And that's also self-compassion. Right. And I just noticed the way that I think sometimes there's a fear or judgment of being a little bit more fierce, especially again for women. Um, But it's like, that can be what kindness looks like and sounds like internally, you know? And then in that example, I was just so grateful to be like, oh yeah, I'm not going to take any of this shit for myself. Like I'm just going (laughs) to clean up the dressing and like get on with my life. And it's very empowering and very freeing, you know, to have that, that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And also you used one great word, which was no, because yeah. I would always say yes to everyone. And sometimes it would kill me to have to like, just put myself in situations I didn't want to be in. So yes, part of self-compassion is those boundaries and being able to say no. Yeah, absolutely. Huge. Okay. So I'm just like looking at the time. Cause I, we could, we could have this conversation for legitimately ever. Are there things just, I have a couple kind of follow-up questions or, you know, closing questions, but is there any like main point about mindfulness that we haven't covered at all that like you just are dying to mention or talk about? And maybe Mm -hmm. not. I just want to throw that out there. Can I, can I 
actually practice for a moment. I just need to like sit for a second and, and see what arises. Yes, if you don't please, mind. please. So I think, I guess the point that I want to get across is that there are so many different ways to practice mindfulness that I want to encourage people to just try out things they come across and see what works for them. And, you know, there's being mindful in the present moment that, right, that's a big part of the practice. So while you're going for a walk, you're coming, you know, every time you catch yourself thinking you're coming back, right, to your feet on the ground and the sounds around you. If you're washing dishes, you're, you know, you're bringing your attention back to the dishes if you notice you're ruminating, that kind of thing. And I think that's so important and that that embodiment. But I also want to encourage people to definitely try to carve out those moments of stillness for themselves because that's where most of my deep work comes from. You know, my my life work where I have realizations that help me. And I think keeping a journal is super helpful. Sometimes a phrase will come to mind that just really works for me for a while, right? Like I'll use it for months or maybe it'll just be a phrase for that day. But having a journal there for you to just write down what's helping you, um, that definitely serves me. And I also think um, keeping a gratitude journal, I kind of just keep like one journal. So I'll just jot things down in that. But um, gratitude is definitely a part of mindfulness that helps our overall well-being and it just helps cultivate happiness. And that's, again, something that you have to... Um, embody until it becomes habitual because sometimes you're just, you know, writing random things down and you're not feeling it. But again, the more you do it, the more it starts to seep into all the areas of your life. You don't even realize it's happening. So even just like five minutes a day, if that's all a person can fit in, it's just really, really helpful. And then I, I I'd also add that, um, while sitting with yourself in your own silence can be healing. It can also be healing to sit in community with other people. And it can also be healing to listen to recordings where you're tapping into the wisdom of others because everyone has wisdom. And I just love working with kids and adults. I, I actually teach mindfulness to adults as well. And I train teachers as well. So I get to be with people of all ages, but I learn from all of them. I mean, three-year-olds can teach me things. So it's wonderful just to have that open heart and mind to take in everything you can and, you know, latch on to what works for you. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that. You really answered basically all of, all of my follow-up questions. I was thinking about when I was first introduced to mindfulness in general. Um, I, I actually share these practices in the beginning of the group program that I teach because all of it is really about rewiring the brain around how it can be helpful. You know, I'm just thinking about if there are listeners who are wondering like, so what's one thing I could start with, you know, and you just, you just gave a lot of good examples. I, my instruction at the time was to start with something that you do already every day, right? Which is back to what you were saying earlier. And the two examples that came up were brushing your teeth and taking a shower. 
because in both of those examples, there's, there's kind of a lot going on. Like you can, you can actually focus on a lot. Right. And so like, if we take the brushing your teeth example, even if you're not practicing mindfulness throughout the rest of the day, if you just start with like dipping a toe right into your own lived experience, you can just practice like feeling the toothbrush in your mouth and like noticing the taste of it in your mouth and like the smell of it. Like there's, there's actually an entire experience, but because it happens on such autopilot, right? We're not mindful. We're mindless. And there's something wrong with being mindless, but like if you're looking for how do you dip your toe in, right? To me, it was very helpful to have like, at the time I had like a post-it on my mirror to be like mindfully brush your teeth because if I didn't have it in front of me, I literally would not remember. And and the same is true with the shower. Like you don't have your phone in the shower. Like there's a lot of smells, you're touching your body. You can kind of anchor to that. Um, so I just wanted to also offer um, those things that I, I found very helpful in the beginning of my own mindfulness journey. And then, you know, needless to say, the practice of mindful eating, mindful movement, ultimately just being embodied for that, which you are practicing. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I remember too, at the beginning of the podcast, I was talking a lot about growing up with a learning disability and my son having a disability and how hard that has been on both of us. And I think as a special educator too, and a person with a disability, mindfulness is so healing and nourishing when you have a struggle like that, where you're feeling down about yourself and, you know, where your skills are and just how you feel in your body. It is such a pick me up and a way to hold yourself. So it's, it's worth diving, diving in and exploring and being curious if you're meeting it with resistance and, and struggling, just kind of finding what works for you. And I like to ask myself, like, what will nourish me right now? Mm. And then kind of going from there. So maybe it's not sitting on a cushion, right? Maybe it's, I want to lay in the grass or I you know, I want to take a bath, right? Like we were saying before. So allowing that flexibility. Yeah. So important. Thank you for adding that. Thank you so much for being here. This is so valuable. It's so important. Seriously. I really appreciate it. I'm glad it worked out. Um, lastly, can you please share, uh, you know, where to find you, where to follow you, like your website, your resources, everything for everyone who's listening? Yes. So for everyone who's listening, I have very bad tech skills that I've recently got to be pretty good, but I don't have any following. So um, I'm, you know, I'm teaching in public school. So I, I work for Northern Westchester Putnam BOCES right now um, in New York, but I have a YouTube channel and I've been trying to slowly add on different meditations on there that I find to be really helpful. So I have a couple on there already that I think are such a resource. One of them is called Just Like Me Practice. And that's what I used a lot in 2020 when the political unrest was killing me. I was in so much pain from the way people were treating each other and just like from the government and politics. And so that is a great meditation, at least for me, for um, releasing anger that I had towards others who felt so different from me. 
So that's, I, I love that meditation. Um, and then I also have something on there called snack break, which is a self-compassion break. Uh, it, it, it has nothing to do with food. It's, it's snack for the soul. So please check that out. Um, and I have a website. It is called Mindful Hearts for All. It's the number four, mindfulheartsforall.com. And under resources there, I have journal prompts and breathing cards and um, a list of hum universal human needs and emotions, all sorts of resources that are free that people can get their PDF form. And then there's also a link to my YouTube channel. And um, the YouTube channel is Sarah Bayo at Mindful Hearts for All. And also in the YouTube channel, I have playlists that have tons of meditations from leading practitioners like Kristen Neff and John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Kornfield. And there's really good ones on there. So you can like try out different styles and see what resonates for you. And I also have um, a Qigong playlist. I didn't really get to talk about Qigong at all during this podcast, but Qigong is just a um, movement with breath work and it's very simplistic. And I personally find it nourishing and it goes very well with, if you can't sit still, doing Qigong is like a moving meditation. So I have those on there as well. So please take a look and enjoy and, and spread the word. Yay. Oh my God. So many resources. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yes. We will have all of it linked in the show notes. So no worries. We have that taken care of and yeah, please follow, reach out all the things. I'm really just like very excited that you are here and that you are a resource for all of the people. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Until next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. Thank you.